Virtual machines were the unit of cloud computation for many years. Amazon Web Services pioneered the democratized model of allowing anyone to deploy a service to the cloud, running on a virtual machine on Amazon's servers. After virtual machines, containers have become the unit of scale in the cloud. Today, we break up our virtualized servers into even smaller units of computation called containers. Today, the unit of compute is getting reduced even more with the introduction of serverless architecture. Serverless architecture started getting talked about after Amazon Web Services released a service called AWS Lambda, which allows users to have pieces of code run in response to events. Programmers write a function and hand it off to Amazon, and Amazon will run that function call and only charge the programmer when the function is actually called. This is in contrast to the cost model of containers or virtual machines, which users pay for even when these machines are running idle. Today's guest is Austin Collins, and he believes that serverless computing is the model for the future, and he created a company called Serverless around this idea. His company, Serverless, provides an application framework for building applications exclusively on Amazon Web Services Lambda. Austin Collins is the founder of Serverless, an application framework for building applications exclusively on Amazon Web Services Lambda. Austin, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. What is serverless computing? Ah, that is a that's a big question. This is something that people are debating um, all around the internet right now. I actually stay away from precise definitions. Uh, to us, it's more of a theme and an ideal. Um, and it's something that we will we will be constantly constantly chasing for for quite a while. Um, but I think in in a very general a very general definition is that uh, the developer does not have to think about servers even though they exist. So to put it in more tangible context, for many years we have been using virtual machines as the unit of computation and the unit of scale. Containers have become the unit of scale today. So in the past, if Twitter is scaling up or down based on lots of users, high traffic, they would have used virtual machines to spin up new instances of their monolithic application in a virtual machine. And then more recently, we think of containers being the unit of scale. And you have these smaller services that are containerized. So what has changed as a result of that overall shift from VMs to containers? Right. Um, <clears throat> well, I'll, I'll speak to, you know, I'm actually not a container expert, but I am a serverless expert. Uh, back in 2014, when I was going to get into containers, uh, that was right when Lambda came out. And I actually just held off on containers and doing a, a deep dive on them because Lambda was something that spoke to me uh, right from the beginning. And I'll tell you sort of the, the critical differences of, of Lambda, and this will help answer that question you had uh, about what is serverless computing or you know, what qualities do we associate with that term today. Um, and first off, with serverless computing, uh, with a, a serverless architecture that's built on Lambda or any of the new uh, functions as a service products like Azure Functions or Google Cloud Functions or IBM OpenWhisk Actions, uh, the, the container is still sort of the unit of scale, but we're, we're more associating the unit of scale with actual functions, uh, which is a lot, which is a lot more granular than I think even microservices uh, or containers can be. Um, and that, that comes with some implications, uh, which we can discuss in a bit. Um, but also the other qualities, uh, the other differences are um, this uh, much more efficient pricing model that AWS has introduced uh, for Lambda. Uh, and that is pay per execution. Um, so there's there's a vast amount of underutilized resources out there that uh, that I encounter every single day when I'm talking to enterprise users of the serverless framework. Um, and with Lambda, there there is no such thing as underutilization. Whereas you know a company may spin up a whole bunch of EC2 instances uh, and never uh, deprovision them, um, and I see that all the time. Uh, but with Lambda, they don't have to worry about any of that stuff. 
Um, they, you know, they only pay for what they use and they don't have to, you know, take anything down when they're not using it. Um, so that's great. And, and overall, there's just, there's no, there's no administration in general, um, which is, I think, where the, the serverless term is, is really relevant. So I'd say um, those are the big differences. And that's, that's the big shift that we're seeing right now. Explain what happens when I make a call to an AWS Lambda function. Like how how does it look in my code, and what is the request response model when I'm making a request to Amazon to call this function, and then they send me back a response? What is happening on their end? Uh, I don't have all the information there. Amazon is <laughs> is very uh, secretive about what happens behind the scenes. Um, but I do know that you know when you when you upload your code to AWS Lambda, you're going to upload a zip file uh, containing your code and you know all of the dependencies it needs. Lambda doesn't install anything. For example, if you have a, a Lambda function written in Node.js, it's not going to install any dependencies that are listed in package.json. It's only going to run everything that's in that zip file. And when you upload your code to Lambda, it's going to be put on, I believe, AWS's own S3. Uh, account or system. And whenever that code is first called, they're going to um, download it, unzip it, uh, spin it up into some type of worker machine, probably EC2, uh, you know, build the environment, like a Node.js environment before that, uh, and then execute the code. And they do all of that really fast, uh, especially in the case of Node.js. Um, they do it so fast that it's sufficient enough to handle web requests. So something where you need a, uh, a response time uh, around 250 milliseconds or less. So what are some examples of things that I would use AWS Lambda for? What kinds of requests would I want to use it for today? Everything. Uh, you know, what we have with Lambda is incredible convenience. Um, and because of that convenience, developers are just looking to use it for everything they can. So in the early days, uh, I believe it was used for more uh, data processing, um, hooking it up to Kinesis streams, uh, DynamoDB streams. Um, but I think something that JAWS, uh, which was the original name of the serverless framework, helped point out is that this could be used for all types of things, especially uh, uh, REST APIs. Um, so we see you know, lots of data processing use cases, uh, lots of back-end services now being built on uh, Lambda, lots of REST APIs, like, for example, just a user's CRUD implementation. Um, people are converting you know, uh, their entire web applications over, over to Lambda. Uh, in addition to that, we see lots of really cool creative use cases. Um, you know, I, I think that there are uh, video encoding Lambda functions um, that people are building. For example, they, they may have one Lambda function uh, that orchestrates uh, a whole bunch of other Lambda functions. And each of those other Lambda functions can process one frame of uh, video or compress it and then put them back together. Uh, and again, this all goes back to Lambda's um, inherent uh, convenience. Uh, the fact that you can, you don't have to administrate all this stuff. You could spin up uh, a whole bunch of Lambda functions concurrently, uh, rapidly to do all types of tasks. Um, you know, it really, it's really leading everyone to do everything on this. And also, not just, you know, business logic, but tons of DevOps logic, uh, which is great. So um, tons of uh, log analysis, uh, security audits, um, you know, data replication across regions, uh, all types of stuff. And it's really cool how you could connect uh, Lambda functions that have business logic in them, uh, you know, with, with Lambda functions that are also doing DevOps. Uh, and it's all, it's all event-driven, uh, which has helped making this making this possible. So, you know, the short answer is, is really everything. And it's just because it's so, it's so convenient uh, that people want to use it for everything. And, and I, as the features grow for Lambda, I think, um, you know, I think it could, it'll soon be able to handle almost, almost every use case there is. So let's think about it from, you know, the perspective of prototypical introductory application. So like a to-do app. So let's say I want, I have a web application where I want to be able to create new to-dos and store those to-dos, and then, you know, delete them after I've done them. How would I architect that using AWS Lambda? How would I build it so that every time I am interacting with the remote server, instead of thinking in traditional terms of a VM or a container, I'm re I've re-architected it to think in terms of 
lambda. Right. Okay. So that's you know that's a that's a typical sort of uh, CRUD example. Uh, you're, you're probably just going to make a, a REST API with a create read uh, update delete operations for that to do app. Um, and there's there's a few ways you could implement it. Uh, again, it's it's uh, Lambda is very flexible, and we see people uh, people employing different patterns when it comes to to rolling out their Lambda functions and how their code is uh, organized into those Lambda functions. Uh, so what I, what I see with the framework are, are three patterns. And uh, these names, I don't know, these names uh, might be confusing, but this is how we're referring to them right now. First off, we see the nano service pattern. And this is you write one Lambda function that does one job. So in your to-do, um, if you have a, a, a tasks uh, data resource, you'd have one Lambda function for create, read, update, and delete. So that would result in four Lambda functions, and each of those are focused on, on one specific job. Uh, and people do this because they love the separation. Um, they also, it's much easier to debug because they say, ah, this Lambda function is supposed to do X. It's either going to do X uh, or it's not. Um, and also, it leaves you in a super agile position. Uh, and this is a lot of this is because uh, AWS Lambda is inherently a microservice platform, and and because you're spreading out your code across all these independent microservices, um, it just leaves you in a in a very agile position. So, for example, in this to do uh, to do application, you'd have four Lambda functions, and then you hook that up to uh, Amazon's API Gateway service, uh, and you give each of those Lambda functions their own REST API endpoints. And at any time, you can go in and modify one of those uh, operations, you know, either the create task or the delete task lambda, uh, independently of the larger system, of the entire application, which, which is great when you're in production because you know, ah, I'm only going to touch this one specific component of my application, and it's not going to affect anything else. And when you're in production and you have, you have a lot of users, uh, that's a great thing. Um, and that's what the nano services pattern is, uh, is perfect for. Uh, also, we see people employing uh, what we call the, the microservice pattern, which is they may have a, uh, a data resource, like a, a task in your example, and they may put all the operations for that, uh, that data resource in a single Lambda function and hook, it up to, hook that Lambda function up to multiple API gateway endpoints. So one HTTP endpoint for the create, read, update, delete operation, all pointing to the same Lambda function. Uh, when, you, when you hit one of those endpoints and it executes the Lambda function, you can actually uh, parse the API gateway information, detect the route uh, or the path or the method that the person used, and, <clears throat> and perform the correct logic. Uh, and the value that this gives you is that you, you, you know, you're not going to have the four separate Lambda functions, which is really nice for debugging, um, you're, but you are gonna, you're going to have a slightly bigger Lambda function, which is, is still not as uh, hard to debug as a monolithic application. But people are doing this because, A, they want less Lambda functions to manage. Uh, and when you're developing with Lambda, you're, you, you will end up with a, with a lot of Lambda functions if you're building a complex system. Uh, but also they want to optimize their Lambda functions for uh, any cold start performance issues. Because when you first call a Lambda function that hasn't been called for a few minutes, uh, there will be a bit of a, a cold start delay, uh, depending on the memory size that you have of your Lambda function and, and what that Lambda function is, is doing, uh, and especially what languages uh, you're using. So by providing, uh, by putting all of your, putting more logic in a Lambda function, there's a higher likelihood that that Lambda function will be called more and it will always stay warm uh, and be more responsive, which is, is, is important for if you're handling uh, web requests in particular. So that's the benefit of the microservice platform, uh, sorry, pattern. So we have the nano services pattern, the microservice pattern. Um, and again, I'm not, you know, these are just temporary names <laughs> trying to inherit uh, uh, some of the patterns with those terms when I when I talk about these. But lastly, there's a uh, there's a new pattern that we've been trying to pioneer a little bit uh, ever since we we saw that GraphQL Facebook's GraphQL was open sourced. Um, and GraphQL to me, you know, I, I started this because I'm always looking for systems with the the lowest total cost of ownership. It's like I want to write the least amount of code. I want to do the least amount of administration, um, and I want to pay you know the least amount. And 
Lambda offered that out of the box, but Lambda with GraphQL also seems to be incredibly efficient because you could take Facebook's GraphQL uh, and uh, node module and put it in a Lambda function and put GraphQL in front of um, infinite DynamoDB tables, for example, any type of data source. Uh, you could take that Lambda function, hook it up to a single HTTP endpoint, um, and then whenever you hit that, you make this, uh, you, you'd essentially be making a graph API. Uh, in your request to that Lambda function, you, you could request any data records across multiple uh, data sources, or in this case, DynamoDB tables, uh, and also any specific attributes of, those, uh, of the data that you've queried, uh, all in, in the form of this custom shape that you're requesting. So you could hit this single endpoint, uh, and it'll trigger your Lambda function to execute. It hits GraphQL. GraphQL looks at the custom shape of your request. GraphQL will go out and query all of your data sources concurrently, bring in all the resulting data, and reshape it to match your request, and then spit that back out. And what that offers you is the potential to take a, a REST API, which may have up to you know 100 endpoints or something like that, and aggregate them or consolidate them all into this single, this single Lambda function with a single HTTP endpoint. Uh, and to us, that just seemed radically efficient. Uh, but the problem is that because you have this one Lambda function that is in charge of all your reads and writes, uh, it gets a lot harder to debug, but it's also a bit more challenging to fit in additional business logic. And so, you know, we have a serverless GraphQL open source project uh, in our GitHub account. It's just github.com slash serverless. And just look through our projects. You'll see the, the serverless GraphQL boilerplate in there. So that that is fascinating. So uh, yeah. my understanding of how GraphQL works is you have a server, a GraphQL server, where if you make a request, if any client makes a request for data in a database for any of the databases that you have, you can you can make a request in the same pattern, just this easy to read JSON pattern to the GraphQL server, and the GraphQL server makes the request to your different databases. It translates the request to, if you have a NoSQL database, in, you know, it makes the request in that format. If you have a MySQL database, it makes the request in that format. Um, if you have some other database, if you have a Cassandra, it makes the request in that format. And the, the, the purpose of the GraphQL server is that it unifies your data model from these different services so that the client programmer, client-side programmer, doesn't have to think about making a request in a specific format to a database. And if I explain that correctly, what you're saying is that the, that it's partic- it, it makes a lot of sense to throw this GraphQL logic in a Lambda function because it's it's it, it gets ad hoc requests, but it gets frequent enough requests to overcome the cold start problem. Right. Uh, you, you know, at the end of the day, it's just it's just radical efficiency, uh, and it brings it brings you know for me it, it brings us closer to that lowest total cost of ownership. So goal. explain explain why we want to do that rather than just having a server that's always up. Because if I have you know, if I'm Uber or Facebook or any of these companies that has regular requests, you know, uh, uh, there's always requests happening. Why don't I just leave a GraphQL server up all the time or a container and I have auto-scaling containers up and down? Why do I need Lambda? Uh, because Lambda offers, you know, zero administration. Uh, and it's those, it's those three reasons I mentioned before. It's zero administration, uh, better pricing model. Uh, much more efficient pricing model, and uh, it's inherently sort of a microservices, which is uh, based, which is which, which is uh, leaves you in a much more agile position. Um, you could build this on servers or or in containers, but Lambda, you know, offers all that out of the box with you know with those benefits. Um, and again, you know, if you if you if we can make this work, we're still messing with this pattern. Uh, which again, uh, we're we're calling this the new monolithic pattern. I don't know if this is <laughs> this is the best term. Um, That's not very sexy. <laughs> no, I mean we're trying to put the word new in front of it, but monolithic has this horrible connotation these days. Uh, but it, but it's you know it's it's radically efficient. You know, ha- being able to reduce your, your REST API endpoints and putting it in this compute service 
that is sort of set it and forget it. And, um, you know, you deploy it, it's up there, it scales automatically, you don't have to uh, configure that at all. You may have to contact AWS to get your concurrency limit raised. Um, and you only get charged whenever it's executed. Uh, to us, to, to me, that just seems just so efficient. Um, and, you know, what's what's driving this, of course, and what I see, and, you know, I'm still new to the Bay Area. I've been up here for about two years. But, you know, what I see these days are, are just hyper-competitive times. Um, I, I see fast-moving startups, uh, sorry, fast-moving markups uh, full of startups, uh, there's there's just a ton of fragmentation these days. It seems like every single feature has become its own product. Uh, and then also increasingly lean enterprises. So we have these huge um, these huge companies, these huge infrastructure as a service providers like Amazon and Google um, who have adopted a lot of the agile methodologies of startups. Um, and they're, they're moving faster than ever and they have tons of resources. So I see uh, this, this age of hyper-competition uh, also greatly accelerated by you know, the fact that we're building software faster than ever, uh, everybody's practicing continuous delivery, everybody's uh, breaking up their monolithic applications and teams to microservice apps and teams. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, I, th- I think that Lambda offers people a competitive advantage right now, which is which is what we're all looking for and is what we, we all need so desperately uh, because it, it frees you up, it frees your, your engineering resources up um, to do other things and really focus on the business logic. Uh, and right now, you know, we're quick to adopt it. I was quick to adopt it because I'm, I'm half entrepreneur, half engineer. I'm always looking for that great competitive advantage. Uh, and I think for people who are adopting Lambda today, you will get that. Um, I think in the near future, though, it's going to be table stakes. I think everybody will be doing this or or have something, be using something very similar to Lambda. Okay, so the thing about Lambda that I have trouble connecting the dots on is it is, to me, this extremely transient thing. You make a single request, it or you, you make a request, it spins up a thing, and the th- the black it spins up a black box, probably a container on Amazon servers, and then it stays up for a little bit, and then it shuts down after a while. But many of the applications that we write are stateful. I mean, if I'm on Uber, I request a ride, and then I'm in the car, and I'm driving, you know, my driver's driving me from point A to point B, takes 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, You know, I, you know, that I need that server to stay up to to manage my session because I'm in the car still. I don't right. I need I need the service to not shut down while I'm still in the car. Yeah. So so what I mean, can you help me connect the dots here? How does a lambda service account for that kind of non-transient use case? Uh right. You know, a lambda there there is still a there're not there are not as many options for managing state um, in in Lambda right now, a lot of people are just relying on DynamoDB because it works very well with Lambda out of the box. Uh, using- like you can manage a state, you you put a state in DynamoDB, and then like when the when the user session is over, you just remove it from the database. Yep. Um, other other people fascinating. Other people are using you know they're using Cognito. Cognito has great integration with Lambda. Uh, what is Cognito? Yeah, and I'm not a Cognito expert. I haven't used it. Uh, is that an Amazon service? Yep, one one of many. So, so it, people are using Cognito. Uh, they're also using Auth0. And how people oh, are... Oh, Cog- Cognito, I get it. So that's like identity or something. Right, yeah. And uh, what a lot of people are doing is with, with Lambda and API Gateway, API Gateway has this new custom authorizers feature. And what this allows you to do is you could uh, create one Lambda function that handles authentication or, or authorization or just um, just checks the state. And you could have this Lambda function fire whenever someone hits one of your endpoints. If you set uh, this Lambda function as the authorizer, you could have this Lambda function fire, do some type of authorization logic, um, and then call a second Lambda function right after that. So that's helping people manage state. Uh, it's helping people manage uh, permissions and everything. And whenever that first authorizer function fires, um, it, it, you could set uh, caching on that. So it doesn't fire all the time. So to talk more about the actual plumbing that we are using to construct our serverless services, the Amazon API gateway, which you've mentioned a couple times, 
it's a service that allows developers to maintain APIs. Explain what the Amazon API Gateway does in more detail. What are the benefits that the Amazon API Gateway provides? Uh, sure. Uh, I think in, in microservice uh, architectures, there's there's been this longstanding idea of, uh, of the API Gateway um, s- service, I guess. And anyway, it's, it's one location where all of your... Uh, where, where you can set up your HTTP endpoints, you can set up a REST API. Uh, and what, what AWS offers you here is, is kind of like a serverless implementation of this API gateway. It's something that's completely managed for you. Uh, you only get charged whenever it's used, whenever your, your endpoints are called. Uh, you can set up caching on it very easily. You can set up any HTTP endpoints uh, very easily. You could have those endpoints integrate with Lambda functions, so they could point to Lambda functions. Uh, they could also point. They could also just be proxies. Um, they could point to any outside service or any other AWS service. Uh, it's very easy to configure. Uh, furthermore, there's there's a great staging feature in there, which allows you to have multiple, uh, basically like uh, environments uh, for your API, which you can hook up to to Lambda functions. Um, that may also have separate stages as well. Uh, and there's a lot of great agility there. Again, it's it's fantastic. It's just sort of set it and forget about it. You don't have to maintain it at all. Um, but it's also great in that you could, you could change each individual endpoint to point to any Lambda function that you want at any time uh, and even change each endpoint to point to Lambda functions in different stages. So you might have a Lambda function that's in some type of beta stage or something like that. Uh, you could easily just say, hey, let me change this single endpoint to point to that beta Lambda function. Um, and we'll test it. If it doesn't work, we'll point it back to the old, uh, uh, the older version of the production Lambda function. So it's nice, you know, again, totally managed, uh, leaves you in a very agile position. Um, and super powerful. There's also a there's also a compute layer built in there, um, so that you could transform the types of requests and response that are that are going in and out uh, via the velocity template language. Um, and, but a lot of people API gateway is uh, comes with a lot of power, uh, a lot of functionality. Um, a lot of people, it, it might be a, a bit too too much functionality for for people. And I will say that it, it was one of the main reasons why I started. Uh, Jaws, uh, which is now called the Serverless Framework, back uh, back in al- almost a year ago, which we should start talking about. So in right. <laughs> 2015, you gave a talk at the AWS Reinvent Conference about this framework that you built called Jaws, and this originally became, oh, this eventually became serverless. So tell me about Jaws and why you started building that. Right. So I was a huge Lambda function, uh, Lambda fanboy as soon as it uh, as soon as it came out. And I was waiting for API Gateway to come out forever because uh, I wanted to build everything on Lambda immediately. I said, ah, I want to. What, what kinds of, give me, a, like, can you tell me some of the applications that you were building with Lambda? Oh, sure. I, I moved up to San Francisco because I wanted to do startups. I'm just, just sort of a purist entrepreneur. I came up here with a startup. And uh, again, I'm just looking for competitive advantage. I'm looking to, to move faster uh, always. And, you know, when Lambda came out, it, it really spoke to me in that regard. So it, you know, what I ne- needed to build, uh, what I wanted to do was just refactor my entire application to, to run exclusively on Lambda and API Gateway. So I wanted to, to refactor the entire REST API uh, to run on what, Lambda. What was the app serverless. that you were working on? The app was called Servant. It was a, it's a, a, a personal database for everybody. Uh, so the concept is that people have their own databases, uh, which they can connect to the apps that they use. And those apps can, uh, yeah, it'll handle uh, authentication, um, and those apps could quickly gain access to their data in standard formats and put that data to use right away. So very REST API centric. And yeah, when Lambda came out, I, it was clear. I said, oh, this is, this is it. This is going to help us uh, move so much faster and make it so much easier because we had a really small team. And so I waited for API Gateway to come out. The day that it came out, it, there wasn't a lot of great documentation. I, I think they pushed it out pretty pretty quickly. Um, and uh, so anyway, the day that it came out, I started to refactor my startup to run exclusively on Lambda and API Gateway. I made my first Lambda function, and I hooked it up to API Gateway all through the AWS dashboard. And it was amazing. It was uh, I felt so powerful <laughs> for only a few minutes until I started uh, making more Lambda functions. 
um, for other uh, REST API paths and, and methods. And as soon as I, you know, the first Lambda function was amazing. As soon as I got to five or six Lambda functions building all these through the, um, the Amazon dashboard, uh, it was clear that it was becoming a, uh, there was a huge management problem here. Um, there was no structure. Uh, again, I was creating all these separate services. Um, I wanted to share code across them. I wanted to deploy them more easily. I wanted to test them more easily. Uh, and all of that was, was super complicated. Again, Lambda mm. is this microservice platform. But I think, you know, the way that people are writing Lambda function code today is, is they're doing it, they're writing a very job-focused, singular job-focused uh, code in their Lambda functions, which is resulting in a lot more Lambda functions um, in, in their architectures, a lot more than I'd say that even um, microservice, uh, microservice architectures would have. So I think with Lambda, you'll have more Lambda functions than you, will, than you would have in a, in a traditional microservice uh, uh, architecture. So I, I think, you know, New Relic, I, I think they have about like 300 microservices um, that they use. I know Netflix has over 1,000, I think. <laughs> and so I, if you think about, you know, if I think about what these companies would look like if they were all built on Lambda function, I would The Death say, Star. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would say, wow, it, these would be several thousand Lambda functions most the, likely. The Death, Death Star exponentiated. Yes, exactly. And so if you want to build a complex system um, with this amazing, this amazing technology, it's really, it's really the, the compute service of the era. Um, but if you want to build something complex on it, you really need something, a tool to handle that complexity. Um, you know, Lambda has, you know, it solves a lot of the microservice problems, but it's also still inherited. So, so, so without, a, without a framework, you're managing this stuff through the Amazon dashboard? Yes, exactly. Which is, which is, if you've never used the Amazon dashboard, this like crazy cluttered thing, right? Crazy cluttered thing, just separate, uh, a separate dashboard. They, they treat every re, uh, service as totally disjointed. So you go over here for your Lambda <laughs> functions. You go over here for your API gateway endpoints. Um, you know, you go over here to CloudWatch to see logs and stuff. And there's no, there's no unity there. Um, and when Lambda was first coming out, I, I read some great articles. There's a great article called uh, AWS Lambda is a Masterstroke. Um, by this guy named Janet Kiram, who's now a, an advisor of our company. Because I thought, I said, man, you're doing the most original thinking in this space. I really, you know, really want you to be an advisor for our company. And he said, okay. But he wrote that uh, Lambda would be the focal point of AWS Cloud in the future. And that is that everything uh, that you build on AWS uh, may use Lambda as the foundation or the compute service in the future. And I thought to myself, it's like, oh, there's got to be a tool that approaches Amazon from that same perspective is that Lambda is sort of the foundation of everything. And, you know, you, you should be able to just list out all your Lambda functions for your project, your application in one place, and then sort of pile on, okay, this Lambda function has this many endpoints. This Lambda function uses, you know, a couple DynamoDB tables. Uh, and everything should, should, should sort of be built on top of that. So, yeah, the framework handles everything, automation, optimization, um, creating scaffolding, and just tons of best practices out of the box. You know, you go on, you go on AWS and you, you, you read their documentation, which there's a lot, and it's, it's pretty confusing. Well, so, um, so, so help me understand how I get started. So if, I want, if I'm like, okay, I want Lambda from day one, or maybe I want to onboard with Lambda from my pre-existing architecture, yep. and I want a more usable way of interfacing with my services and updating them, uh, so I want to use JAWS, now called serverless, which is your framework. What do I do to get started? And what? how am I accessing, how am I looking at this more uh, visually appealing, um, more digestible form of representation for these different Lambda functions? Do you Do you provide a... Is it a web API or is it is it like a configuration file that I have locally? Or tell me how I get onboarded and what the experience is, how it compares to managing all these Lambda functions through the janky uh, AWS dashboard. Right. Yes, the framework is a is a CLI tool, um, so a command line interface that's uh, built on Node.js. Uh, you must have Node version 4 installed, and then you can install the framework uh, via NPM. Just do NPM install serverless uh, with the global flag. Um, and then you'll have a bunch of commands there that you could use to create a, a new project, 
uh, to create Lambda functions in that project. Um, and there's just, you know, the, the CLI is just filled with functionality. Uh, it'll prompt you for all of the necessary information that it needs. It's going to need uh, some type of access or API keys or uh, session token to your AWS account. And, um, you know, once you add that in, and it'll prompt you for that right in the beginning, uh, you can get started. And um, there's a few, uh, let's see, on, on the GitHub uh, repo, there are, we've listed uh, a few projects. So one thing we did with the framework is we made uh, projects shareable. So, you know, you could either uh, create a new project from scratch using the uh, CLI, um, uh, or you can install a pre-existing project, and there are a few boilerplate projects that give you best examples uh, and that you can install to get up and running more quickly. Okay, and as I understand, with serverless, you have these things that are called AWS modules, and it's kind of like the modularity that you get maybe from Docker Hub, where you can just pull down this Docker container and now you've got a way to run MySQL in your environment. Is that accurate? Is that your your AWS module uh, uh, setup at in serverless? Um, it's not. It, it used to be accurate, uh, but we've we've stopped supporting the the AWS module uh, project just because it it wasn't right. We never quite solved the problem that we were setting out to solve with that, and we've done a bad we've done a bad job of uh, putting that it's unsupported now. Uh, on the repository, so we have to do that. Um, you know that one of the, one of the things that one of the problems that I really wanted to address uh, with the framework was that um, I, I think with this job focused code that we're writing for Lambda, it's resulting in this great granularity, which I think could translate well to great reusability. Uh, and I thought, you know, if you look at all the logic that we're building with our applications, there's a lot of uh, custom logic that is specific to our business needs and requirements. Um, but there's also a lot of common logic. It's stuff that we write and rewrite for every single application we make, like sending out transactional email or resizing an image or replicating data across across regions. Um, and, I, and I see Lambda and you know containers, uh, you know, with both of these forces. Um, I, I think that we're on this br- a brink of a uh, a dry revolution, and and, and uh, somehow we're going to be able to write this stuff once and have a greater level of reusability. And so the, the AWS module um, format, which is a, the abbreviated is awesome, was our attempt to try and make um, Lambda functions, just have pre-written Lambda functions that are open source and people can install them uh, and um, deploy them right away without having to do anything. Um, so we, we try to try to approach the problem a few different ways. Uh, we never quite got there, but now we're working on serverless framework version one, and we're we're attacking this problem again. We're coming at it with some new ideas. Um, we're going to call these uh, serverless services instead of uh, AWS modules because a big uh, a big feature of um, version one is that now there's all these new serverless compute services. Uh, since Lambda came out, we now have Azure Functions, Google Cloud Functions, IBM OpenWhisk Actions, um, and the story of the serverless framework is going to be to support all of these uh, all of these services uh, in the framework. So you have flexibility uh, about where you're going to deploy your code, um, and, and if there's any way that we could offer that code to be uh, pre-written and easily installable and reusable, um, well, that's that's just something that I'm personally very passionate about, and I think we're very close to that. So, so we, we don't we don't support the awesome format, um, but we're going to approach it again again in version one with this new name, and it's and it's going to be called the the serverless service. Is the business model for serverless to provide a layer of interoperability with all of these different Lambda function things? Like you, you can, like, let's say I have an application, my app, and I write it using the serverless framework. Now my application is interoperable with AWS Lambda and um, IBM OpenWhisk and. Azure Cloud Functions and Google Cloud Functions, and and I can just take the best price from these different services based on just the fact that I'm uh, I've unified my model through serverless. Is that the business model? Yeah, that's 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 part of the the value proposition. That's a big part, especially in this upcoming um, 
version one of the framework. Uh, as far as the business model goes, you know, I, we have we have other projects, uh, other commercial products that we'd like to launch. We like we're going to keep the the framework free and open source forever, um, and just build other products around it. Because you know, I, I have maybe <laughs> I think we have like forty different serverless uh, themed projects that we want to build, uh, all heavily related to the framework. So that's you know how we're thinking about making money. Um, but as far as what the, the biggest uh, value you get out of the framework and especially version one, it's going to be interoperability with all those, and I guess we're using this term functions as a service, uh, services, um, which are new and have just come out and they look great. They have a lot of, um, a lot of interesting stuff to offer. Uh, you know, on the surface, they all look very similar, um, to Lambda, but once you do a deep dive, they certainly are a bit different. Um, and it's, uh, it's a little frustrating, but, you know, we've been working closely, um, with Chris at Azure functions, uh, with Jason at Google cloud functions with Steven at IBM open whisk. And, um, these people all have great ideas about, um, these products and how they should be built. And it's frustrating on one hand, cause I'm thinking, ah, oh, uh, you know, our team is going to have to abstract all this. Um, and figure out how to provide a, a uniform experience across all these different products, um, but at the same time, you know where these these uh, these thought leaders, these team leaders are taking those products is it's just it's just super interesting. Well, and not not to mention, aren't I mean, isn't Amazon like they have no desire to be interoperable with these other things, right? Because they don't want the switching cost to be zero. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't speak for them. I've got a great relationship uh, with the Lambda team, with the API Gateway team. Um, they've, you know, they've been over backwards to, to support us um, in so many different ways. Uh, you know, as far as, as what they want to do, I know, you know, Tim Wagner, the, the mighty Tim Wagner is, is leading, uh, both Lambda and API gateway products over there at Amazon. Um, and you know, he's, he hasn't, you know, he's been talking about interoperability. Um, and you know, we've, we've been chatting about this behind the scenes for a little while. He seems, he seems more open to it, um, than I initially expected, um, given Amazon's, yeah, track record, but also given their position as sort of the market leader. Um, so, you know, how this how this shakes out, don't know. It's still early days. Um, but I don't know. I, I got to give it up to the, the team over there because they've been great uh, embracing the open source community, helping everybody out, um, talking to their enterprise users. I'm always shocked at uh, whenever I hear that the Lambda engineers have been talking to every single company that we're talking to. Um, I just I can't believe they get any work done at the end of the day. So I don't know. Um, I have high expectations for them, and uh, I've seen good stuff. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see how this shakes out in the, in the near future here, I'm sure. So help me understand what that interoperability building process is like, because you've got AWS over here, you've got Google over here, you've got Azure over here. IBM over here, you want to write serverless in a way that I can deploy my serverless service and it's compatible with these different things. What sort of API do you have to provide as serverless that will be compatible with all of these different things? Yeah, uh, first step is defining a standard uh, configuration format that works across uh, all these providers, not just the big providers, but the little ones too. There's other companies like uh, Iron.io who are who are um, doing lots of interesting stuff in this space. Um, <clears throat> so coming up with this standard configuration format uh, is something I we've been chatting uh, with AWS about actually. And um, how, you know, how this will be open to everybody, you know, there's still some challenges there, especially because the other products that are Lambda competitors haven't officially been released yet. So they're still going through some some big changes. Um, so, you know, we're, we're trying to chase chase down those changes. But uh, yeah, I think it starts with this, this standard way of describing the serverless application or the serverless service. Um, and that's where we're going to start. Uh, something that we've done with the serverless framework, which I think has been incredibly successful, is that um, it's completely extensible. Uh, to me and you know to, to my team, uh, a great developer tool is like 100% hackable because we're you know we're hackers. We like to go in there and, and change stuff. So anything that the framework does, you could write a plugin to overwrite that action um, or add in a new action. 
And with version one of the framework, we're doubling down on this, uh, this plugin, this core plugin architecture. And uh, any provider is going to be able to build in plugins that offer a single deployment experience um, or that add to the deployment experience to cover, um, to cover their provider. So Amazon recently released something called Flourish, which is a runtime application model for AWS Lambda. I don't know much about Flourish, but maybe you've looked into it. How does Flourish compare to serverless? Um, you know, it's it's hard to talk about because I, you know, we just learned about it a couple of days ago, and I think Tim only really released like a single slide or two slides on it over at uh, Serverless Conf last week. Uh, so we're still learning about it. Uh, it's clear, you know, they want to collaborate with us. You know, we've got a lot of momentum in the open source community. Um, that, you know, they want to collaborate with us and, and build this thing together. Um, you know, I, I don't know what it's going to turn into. Uh, it's still it's still pretty early. Um, but I don't know. Maybe we should revisit this conversation in you know in a few weeks or <laughs> a few months or something. Um, you know, it's uh, yeah, we'll we'll see. Um, but you know, we. We've uh, we recently got some funding, um, and by some great investors, we're going to do a, a formal announcement sooner. Um, we're going strong with this multi-provider approach, which I think is is the way to go. Uh, developers should be free to use. It has been the dream for many years. Oh yeah, the developers should be free to use anything they want um, to take advantage of lower cost to compute or features. Um, and this is this is the direction we're going in. Uh, we're going to work closely with Amazon uh, as always, and also double down on our on our essential, our basic um, uh, Amazon functionality. Um, but you know, now we're working closely with these other these other providers, and there's a lot of interesting stuff um, out there. And and that's our direction. We've got we've got the resources now to to focus on this for a long time. And lastly, you know, it's interesting when you when you think about what we're building here. This this uh, this network of logic, I, you know, I see these architectures as just this network of this, these little pieces of granular logic, uh, all connected by events. And, you know, where that logic is located, those little tiny bits, um, you know, I, I think it'll be less relevant uh, than it was in the future. Or, uh, sorry, less, uh, less difficult to have some type of multi-cloud architecture uh, than it was in the future. Because we're not talking about... You know, having huge monolithic apps across different clouds. We're just talking about having little bits of code um, across across these different clouds. And I think there's a there's a great opportunity for that in this serverless event driven architecture um, to be able to take advantage to use cloud functions to take advantage of some great data processing tools that Google offers. Uh, or to use Lambda to take advantage of some features um, that AWS offers and have that event-driven code sort of uh, work together seamlessly through through some type of standard um, uh, event uh, format. When I try to think about how these different compute platforms are positioning themselves against each other, it's very hard for me to project how it's going to look in the future. Like AWS, Google... Azure, are they going after the same markets or are they going after disjoint markets? Is it like, you know, is it they're just going after the same people or is Google going after machine learning and Azure is going after enterprise and AWS is going after, I don't know, uh, startups or, or uh, I don't know, like, right. are these going for distinct verticals or are they highly competitive with one another? I see them as highly competitive. Um, I see, you know, certain certain people are in the lead in in in, in certain areas, um, but uh, you know, I see as they all, uh, you know, these are these are winner take all markets, and I and I and I think that these companies have a ton of resources that they're throwing at at just about everything. Um, you do think it's winner take all? Because I find that surprising because, like, Google is going to win the machine learning market with TensorFlow, and. Azure is going to win the enterprise market because they're already locked into Windows and the Microsoft ethos. Uh, probably the same is true for people who are locked into Amazon Redshift or whatever Amazon's APIs are. Isn't there some degree of highly verticalized specialization? Um, maybe you know, maybe there is, and, and maybe this is what this serverless event-driven you know microservice architecture um, will help with. Uh, but you know, it's 
when people ask me like, you know, what's, what's the big value of Lambda? It's, you know, those reasons I mentioned, but it's also the reasons that, uh, that Lambda works so well with all of AWS's other services. Um, and that, you know, that, that brings a lot of value to Lambda, how easily you can interact with DynamoDB or S3, uh, in a really, uh, at really low latencies. Um, so I see the value as transitioning to, you know, building out these as, as platforms and being able to offer everything on your platform and have it, have it integrate, uh, very well together. Um, so, so I, I, you know, I, I really don't know. Um, it, it could shake out, like you said. Uh, and again, I, I think the serverless, you know, event-driven architecture may may help that happen. Uh, if we could use this as a way to connect clouds, and and the developer could take advantage of you know all the features that they want. Um, don't know yet, but it's it's something that I that I kind of just want to get a bucket of popcorn and <laughs> sit back and watch because it's going to be. I think it's going to be interesting. I mean, these are these are truly titans uh, battling it out. Indeed. So you okay? You know, as we begin to close off, you know, you mentioned the open source momentum of serverless. You mentioned the fact that you got you guys have gotten funding. Give me a projection for how serverless is going to evolve in the next year or two, and your interaction with the open source community, and how you are going to use that funding. Right. Um, great question. First off, the framework is our core focus right now and uh, going multi-provider and offering this great uniform experience uh, across all the clouds um, and and just making a great self-sustaining community. Uh, I think that's the most important thing. Um, you know, we, we'd like to work uh, with enterprise companies. Uh, we've got a lot of great enterprise adoption already, which is uh, shocking to me how fast these enterprise companies have, have adopted uh, Lambda and the framework as well. Um, but it, most of our focus is going to be on on the framework. Um, you know, with with this seed round, we'd like to introduce a few commercial products. Um, the framework really only tackles the first half of the story, I'd say, and that is the development and uh, deployment uh, phase uh, phases of building your application. Now, once you get something up and running on the internet. Um, you know, there's really nothing there that helps people understand what the heck their architecture looks like and how it's working together. Um, so we see a lot of demand for that right now um, and a lot of demand in other places. So, you know, we'd like to focus on the framework and we'd like to focus on that second half of the story. And I'd say probably the next year out, uh, we'll be focused on, on just telling that full story so that, you know, people, people can really build more complex systems on this and, and everybody can adopt it. Okay, Austin. Well, this has been an awesome conversation. Um, I'm really happy to have had you on the show. Serverless is something that people are definitely excited about, both in terms of the branding, uh, the actual branded product that you have and serverless computing as a concept, uh, the Lambda stuff and everything else. So thanks. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeff. Um, We'd love to chat again anytime. Absolutely. Okay, cool. Well, let's let's uh, let's keep in touch. Sounds good. Take care.